0: Everybody, my name's Peter McMillan. I'm the Chief Executive Officer at NT Shelter, and you're watching another episode of Sharing the Couch. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the lands of the Larrakia people here in Darwin, and I'd like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal people, elders past, present, and emerging, the Larrakia, and also other First Nations people who may be watching or listening to this podcast in the Northern Territory, across Australia, or overseas. Welcome. Today, we have another fantastic guest on our program, uh, Louise McCormack, who is the Commissioner for Infrastructure in the Northern Territory. Louise McCormack has over 20 years experience in the transport and infrastructure sectors. She is also a multi-award winning chartered engineer in both civil and structural engineering, as well as chartered as an engineering executive. Over the 16 years, Louise has worked in the Northern Territory. She has been involved in planning, Delivery and management of some of the territory's largest and most complex infrastructure projects, and has been instrumental in securing Australian government funding for significant road upgrades across the Northern Territory. Louise represents the Northern Territory on several national boards, committees, and working groups, including as a deputy chair of Ausroads, Austroads. I should say, Australian Road Research Board, AWRB the Infrastructure Investment Forum and iBody National Forum, which I imagine is the Infrastructure Body National Forum, clarify that. Louise was a key member of the Infrastructure Australia Working Group that guided the development of its new assessment framework for major infrastructure projects. Some of the projects Louise has taken a leading role on during her time here in Darwin include the Victoria Highway floodplain upgrade and the Tiger Brennan Drive extension. In May this year, Louise was awarded the John Shaw Medal by Roads Australia, and has previously won the Telstra Businesswoman's Award, the Nokia Innovation Award in 2010, and was Engineers Australia Northern Division's Young Professional Engineer of the Year. Please welcome, or I should welcome Louise McCormack to sharing the couch. Peter. Hi, Louise, how are you? Good, thank you, Peter, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us on the couch. And I was um, interested in going through your background as an engineer. Clearly, you've got a real passion in building things. When did, um, how did that come about? Did you always know you wanted to be an engineer or, or, or you wanted to be in that kind of game? How did that work for you?
1: I definitely have. It's um, in my blood, so to speak, because my father's an engineer. Um, and right from when I was quite a small child, I've been interested in um making and creating things i guess is where it's come from and my passion for for that
0: absolutely my family is full of engineers as well and i'm not one of them so i'm a bit of the black sheep but what is it about engineering that really is uh, challenging and rewarding
1: um the best thing i love about engineering is that um, i love seeing ideas become reality and um, things coming into fruition so the the, from the start of the process of thinking up um way creative ways of solving things or making things better um and then actually um but deliver delivering on that really and um seeing that come to life is really exciting and really rewarding thing i feel
0: personally absolutely and what would be i guess the i guess the attributes you need you probably need to be fairly tenacious and have a bit of creativity I mean what, what
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm told I'm not a typical engineer right. uh, but most engineers are, are very much um, like maths and science and those sorts of things. Uh, but I, th- I feel like um, engineers really do need to be creative particularly in the in the problems we're trying to solve um, in the future. We definitely need some creative thinking, a lot of innovation as well. Um, trying to think of new ways of doing things and improving things. So, um, yeah, if you like maths and science or you like creativity and, and making things, um, is definitely the, the type of skill sets you'll need as an engineer.
0: And just for people who may not be so clear, we often talk about civil engineering and structural engineering. Um, what are the differences between that? or Are they similar or are there differences?
1: They're very similar. So at university, um, you do do the same course, um, but it's, it's the specialities that you go into once you graduate and go into the workforce. So civil engineering is more um, like the road building and uh, moving dirt and those sorts of things um, and foundations, that sort of thing. Structural engineering is more like your bridges, your buildings. Um, those types of things so my particular uh, disciplines are are both because I do mainly civil structures. so I did start out as a bridge engineer many years ago Um, and because I'm sort of looking across both, um, both of those disciplines I have worked in both of those disciplines throughout my entire career.
0: Excellent and um In terms of roads, just was reading out in that intro there that you've had some more more recognition awards for for your work with roads. I mean, I remember an old campaign for, you know, advertising energy, I think it was in New South Wales, and they said, we're excited by electricity, even if you're not. I mean, it's a little bit like that with roads. I mean, I think it's fantastic, (laughs) but maybe not everybody's passion. What do you find so inspiring about roads? That's probably
1: a really good analogy, actually, because... um... I do get really excited, particularly about transport and what it means to people, because I feel like a lot of people um, take roads and transport for granted. But when it's not there, it really has a big impact on people's lives. Um, And I often advocate at the national level the Northern Territory's um, plight in roads because 70% of our network is still unsealed. Um, and because we have wet season rain up here, it often cuts off a lot of people from health, education, jobs, and even just basics as um, food and supplies during the wet season. So uh, the John Shaw medal that you mentioned, um, they awarded it to me essentially because of the work I've done in this space over many years to try and connect communities and, and provide um, even if it's just a road, I, I know what the road enables to have them a better a better life um, and better connection to all sorts of things. So, I like the idea that just the, something as simple as a road um, connects people and makes their lives better. So,
0: that was part of that would yeah and i think that's that's a key part of engineering is it because you're wanting to solve through engineering solutions a lot of problems or opportunities that society has so there can be those social and economic benefits
1: yes yeah and it's i find it's really important to balance um both the social and economic and obviously you need the economic to generate the revenue so you can invest more in the social side of things so but the social side of things is also about well-being of everyone so it's um yeah it's no wonder I love my job it's yeah. it's really um I love doing what I do it's just yeah I guess it shows through in
0: what I do as well absolutely no that's for sure uh, just before we get back into infrastructure a little bit more detail uh you know I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting quite a few amazing women in engineering fields over my working life whether that being chemical engineering and food uh in the food sector uh in terms of electrical mechanical etc uh, and um, I was, I'm just keen to understand what the, what your experience is like in Queensland growing up and ploughing your way through, through your career path as a woman in engineering and, and what you would say to women out there, I guess, aspiring to be engineers, In what I guess used to be, maybe not so much these days, but generally a male-dominated sector of engineering.
1: It's engineering actually still is very much male-dominated, so it's only, um, I think the number's now 13%. Women in Engineering is still quite a lot of male um, people out there, but I I do um, talk to a lot of women in engineering and and forums in that space um, and was on the National Women in Engineering Committee at one point. Um, It's got better since I graduated. So when I graduated, it was about 9%. So it's slowly getting better. Um, But I think a lot of the, there's a lot of stereotypes about what engineering is and, and, Tends to deter um, females wanting to enter into the engineering workforce, so um, disheartens me when I hear that. But um, to be honest, I've had varied experiences, and probably not the typical ones where um, you think maybe the males are the ones that are uh, making it hard. It's can be either male or female Um, and because of those stereotypes the the female angle normally is that i've taken an unusual career path for a woman Um, but i often challenge their thinking in that space that it's not all hard hats and steel cap boots there's a lot of um office work and creativity and uh, working with people that is just as involved in my job as as um the harder more stereotypical parts i guess so um and younger younger engineers do talk to me quite a lot as well and i've um they often are shy or not wanting to feel the confidence that they need in their career and i often say look your voice really does matter so don't be afraid to speak up in those forums and and have your say as well so i think it's changing um since i started but it's been a journey definitely. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think that's I think it's um it's fantastic to hear that it's changing and um and it's it's really important that that people hear stories like yours that, uh where you can be successful um and the rewards that job has and the fact that it's not all about stereotypes uh, challenging yeah. people's assumptions and I guess also in in year in recent years there's probably been a lot of technological change and and uh, improve or not improvements sorry but new advances in technology and things around data and, and computing Would you want like to comment Absolutely. on how that's changed perhaps
1: it's I think it's actually changed the face of engineering because um it's very much a traditional disciplines but throughout my career because there's been so much technological change the types of engineering you can do these days is significantly different and um even environmental engineering that was a very new um, thing when I started out but now there's lots of environmental engineers out there but even um, renewable energy wasn't a thing when I started so that it's such an exciting (laughs) based career it's um, yeah the multidisciplinary aspects are probably what excites me more these days and some of the projects I'm working on where you can cross fertilize the ideas and come up with something really new and innovative. Um, and I think engineering is reinventing itself a lot uh, with the challenges ahead. And we need to do that too to face the challenges we have, is to be a bit multi skilled and multi disciplinary teams. So, yeah, it's exciting.
0: Fantastic. It is exciting indeed. Great time to be an engineer by the sound of it. Um, so, when the word infrastructure, as mentioned, I know myself a few years ago when I was working in regional development, I thought I'd better have a close look at what this word infrastructure means, because for me, it often used to mean things like poles and wires, or roads and, and rail. For other people, it might mean telecommunications or other different things. Could you just maybe give a, I guess, a fairly, um, for people who might not be accustomed to the word or want to know a bit more about what's in and what's out of infrastructure only, what would it mean to you? How would you describe it?
1: So, infrastructure in the infrastructure um, body world really means the built environment. So, it could mean anything from roads, buildings, um, your internet connections, all of those sorts of things are really part of the internet uh, infrastructure spectrum that we look at. So, when infrastructure bodies are considering infrastructure it's really about what's the outcomes we're trying to achieve by investing in that infrastructure so it could be if you're investing in housing for example is um, trying to deliver more houses for the growing population or the needs out there Um, digital connectivity for example um, is it about uh black spots from a a telecommunications, is it internet? It's those sorts of things and the outcomes you're trying to achieve. So we're undertaking a a infrastructure audit right now in the Northern Territory and digital connectivity, for example, has come up as being both a social and an economic outcome. Um, Economic from it enables businesses to be connected to markets, but also from a social um, aspect where a lot of parts of the territory are remote Um, And it helps them connect back with family that may be in in other places, as well as accessing things like telehealth or education online. So um, it's really trying to look at what the built environment can do to achieve an outcome.
0: Okay. And so you you touched on there on social infrastructure and and economic infrastructure. Are they pretty much as important as each other or or do governance, I guess, and... um, and others in finance generally think, well, the economics infrastructure is the key stuff and we'll also then need to look at the social as a secondary consideration. How do do you weigh that up?
1: So I think in our space, it really is a balance that you need the economic, obviously, to generate revenue that you can then invest in your social infrastructure as well. But vice versa, you need good social infrastructure to make sure you're attracting and retaining the workforce you need to drive the economy. So it's they're very much intertwined and getting that balance right is part of the work I do in the Northern Territory is uh, trying to work out what's going to give us really good um, self-generated revenue for the Territory so that we can invest back into social infrastructure.
0: So earlier this year in April, you were appointed the Territory's Infrastructure Commissioner and, and congratulations again for that. I know you, you were acting in that role Uh, for a period of time before then as well. And and we also have a... um, Well, before we get on to the Investment Commissioner as well, let's talk about your role. So it's a new role. Um, First of all, can you just maybe tell us a bit about that, how it works within the framework of government, what what you and your team are are there to do?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So we are 18 months old or thereabouts now, Um, but we really have three key things that we do in Infrastructure NT... Um, and the first is we're the first eye body or infrastructure body for the Northern Territory. And it's um, to explain that it's similar to Infrastructure Australia and, and other jurisdictions where we essentially coordinate um, all types of infrastructure to advise government on um, how they can achieve the outcomes that they're wanting to do through investment in that infrastructure. Uh, the second piece really is... Um, a growth agenda that the Northern Territory Government has right now, which is a a $40 billion economy. Um, And through that, I work very closely with the investment and major projects commissioners um, to make sure any private sector investment or major projects that are coming here have um, the economic infrastructure they need to enable their investment um, and revenue, obviously, to be generated. So um, that's the second part. The third part is we actually get to deliver some of government's um, mega projects, I will call them. Uh, So things like the Darwin Shiplift is being delivered by my team, but also things like um, the new NT Art Gallery in State Square in um, Darwin is another project we're delivering as well. So we deliver. it Doesn't matter if it's economic or social; could be a combination of both. Um, but yes, we deliver the bigger projects as
0: well. So then when you yeah. when you say when you say deliver, does that mean project managing the the delivery of them?
1: Yeah, everything um, depending on what state the project's in. But everything from project development and planning through to delivery um, and working at operational models from there on in as well. So okay. it could be a, or a mixture of the above.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. And so just within the infrastructure realm, I mean, there's uh, I'll just, I just I might just go through a couple of things that are on the plate at the moment that, that that I understand you're working on. You've got, obviously, the Middle Arm Precinct, which we'll talk about in a minute. You've got the Tanamai Road upgrade, the Darwin Waterfront Master Plan. There's a whole lot of regional logistics hubs and, and major opportunities with Sun Cable and the Bedaloo. Uh, basin reserves um, a lot of I guess a lot of ideas a lot of projects how do you weigh up what a good infrastructure project is and, and let me just maybe throw in there I remember in, in going back a little while we used to look at benefit cost ratios are the benefits of the project greater than the costs sounds simple but maybe there's a bit more involved in it how do you determine what is a, is a good project to invest government money in versus what's not such a good project
1: yeah it's a great question and one i've um, had multiple discussions with infrastructure australia on over the years Um, but uh, previously infrastructure australia and through their legislation they do need to use benefit cost ratios to determine uh, what's a good project and what's not Um, I strongly argued that that shouldn't be the only thing you look at when assessing projects because at the time we were um, looking at the Tanamai Road, for example, and the Tanamai Road has a lot of benefits, but they're not necessarily going to meet, uh, you know, the benefit, traditional cost benefit analysis that um, they were using. So. I actually think that's part of the assessment, but you need to be a bit more strategic about what you're looking at and think more about what's what's the strategic fit or the outcomes that you're trying to achieve through that investment. Um, so the Tanamai road, for example, it's benefit cost ratio teeters on one, which means it's positive or negative depending on how many trucks on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is there are so many more things that that, Um, unlocks by upgrading that road so all the remote communities along that road will benefit from uh, better access to government services they're better connected back uh, where they may have family members in other communities Um, they also can potentially uplift tourism in central Australia um, as well as the mining sector and cattlemen so uh It has multiple benefits, but not necessarily all of them are monetary in value. So um, the community and social side of those things and wider economic benefits are never taken into account. Uh, And I successfully argued with um, Infrastructure Australia that they change their framework to include strategic fit, uh, essentially to try and respond to issues and things that the government of the day may be aiming to achieve through through their um, government. So um, closing the gap is a really good example of that, is that may necess- not necessarily have a positive cost-benefit analysis, but you're actually trying to achieve better outcomes for Aboriginal Australians, which may not fit in an, a normal analysis of what you're trying to achieve. So it's really being very clear on what outcomes you're trying to achieve from that investment, I think is the best approach.
0: That seems to make a lot of sense. And I guess the other thing, maybe it's a source of not necessarily conflict, but a difficult thing to get across when government maybe thinks in shorter term cycles, three to five years, perhaps, and of course, there are election cycles and and, and election promises and commitments. What if you see a project that, since what you have just described, has a lot of um benefits but those benefits may not be realized in the short term but maybe they're longer term payback periods but you know that if we don't do them sooner rather later the costs for future generations will be higher how do you kind of navigate those arguments or discussions with, with governments yeah it's
1: a really good one as well and again i'll go back to roads because that's what i know but um the Tanamo Road, when you look at it as like a singular project, for example, it was close to half a billion dollars to upgrade the road. But if you if you rethink about how you're going to deliver those bigger, um, I call them wicked problems, if you can think about them as a, a program of projects rather than one large project, you can uh, break it down into bite-sized chunks and then actually prioritise Uh, how you are going to roll out and achieve an outcome from that so um, we look at investment strategies which actually do that and you you take a look at the macro level and what the bigger outcome you're after and then work out a plan of how to prioritize and roll that out it may be over a longer period of time but at least you know you're working towards that ultimate goal of solving that issue. So, I think um, we tend to, and this happens with engineering problems, and it's probably me adopting my engineering problem solving to the a different um, different way. Is bigger problems usually you can adapt by doing it in small chunks and and moving through it systematically. And I like to think about those really big. Wicked problems as being something we can achieve over a longer period of time, um, but not necessarily getting tied up in the this is a huge problem and it's going to cost huge dollars. It's thinking more about, well, how if we were to do this, how would we achieve it?
0: Absolutely, that makes a lot of sense as well. Um, now, I'll just like to talk a bit about, I guess, the potential of the Northern Territory, and, and as you mentioned before, there is a, a vision. Uh, for a $40 billion economy by 2030. uh, There's around 300,000 population which has been forecast. I'd like to talk about the power of vision in this because as an example of that, and this is kind of exciting stuff, I think, when you look at what we can do in the Territory with with the scale of of deposits, resources, uh, precincts, We've got a lot of natural advantages, a lot of competitive and comparative advantages compared to other states and territories with proximity to Asia and everything. You have to think we have a, a lot of upside. Just an example of a vision for a, for future development with middle arm precinct. I mean, when you look at the, I know Minister Law has recently released a, a bit of a plan um, around yes. around that as a major project, looking at opportunities for advanced manufacturing, sustainable development low emissions, hydrogen, you know, green hydrogen, sorry, low emissions, hydrocarbon, green hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, maybe up to 20,000 jobs by 2040. And in that case, also looking at the possibilities for that precinct over 50 years, and I think think there's something like 200 projects that are underway or will be underway to to look at all that enormous body of work, but a real vision for what you can do with that area. Can you tell, tell... tell me a little bit about how a vision like that comes to be in terms of whether it's driven by, you know, like yourselves and infrastructure, whether there's a person within government that's actually putting that all together. Because it is a vision. it's yes. it, it, To me, it looks quite compelling. Um, but how does how do you get to that end point? Yeah, it's
1: um, a really good question. And... <sighs> It's a bit complex, my answer, but I might start um, with a bit of history on it first. So, um, when Impex was about, when we saw Impex was finishing, um, government realised that there was a need to um, sustain our economy at a different level or a higher level. And the opportunity, I guess, was seen that with Middle Arm and with both Impex and Santos there, that maybe it becomes a, a full precinct. Um, and with that, government um, asked DIPL, which is the agency um, we sit in, uh, to undertake some master planning to understand, uh, firstly, what the opportunity may have been and when it looked um, like it was a real opportunity, is then going into the really detailed work of all the land development, marine and environmental studies that we've done um, to get it to the point we have now and and. Uh, Australian government have now committed one and a half billion towards the project. Wow. Um, and to be honest, middlearm is a, a globally unique opportunity that the territory has where we've master planned an entire precinct on circular economy type principles where some of the waste from some industries could be the feedstock for others. We have access to renewable energy from Sun cable. Um, at an industrial scale, which has not been done worldwide. Um, and it's, it's to me, it's an opportunity for not only the Territory but Australia to play a global role in the energy transition globally. Um, and with our existing partnerships with, like, Japan and to um, our north in Asia, um, they're also seeing the potential because they trust us. We, we already export... of um, Japan's energy resources through Impex, but um, so they know us we have we have um, sovereign stability in Australia. So I think it's really um, an opportunity like I've never seen before for the territory to start generating some of their own source revenue that we can reinvest back into the territory. Um, but also play a role in global energy transition. So to me, it's a really exciting project um, that yeah. we've been planning for for some time. Uh, but now it's starting, rubbers starting to hit the road, and we'll yeah make it happen.
0: That's that, that sounds fantastic. I guess um, I do want to get onto housing in just a minute. I, yep. I'm curious about the uh, notion of like well, it's like a chicken and the egg question. I guess do you need industry and um, business to commit to growth like with a final investment decision before you provide the infrastructure or do you take the view in, the, especially in the regions that let's build the infrastructure and then the jobs and industry will come. Like Things like, as you said, the build environment. If there are resources in one of our regions in the Territory um, but we're still waiting on final investment decisions, do you take a risk-based approach as to whether you're going to commit to infrastructure to support future development in that area, or do you say we really need that particular industry, whether it be in agriculture or in, um, I don't know, in mining or or whatever the case might be, to make a final investment decision and then we go and look at the gaps and start to make it happen? How does that generally work these days?
1: It's probably more the latter, and before the Commissioner roles were um, put into government, I think it probably was more the former. So it we're sitting we're kind of sitting back i guess and waiting for investors to come to us whereas now we're a little bit more forward thinking in terms of well if we have a a common and to de-risk it a common user infrastructure approach so middle arm for example is not building it for just one proponent but having investment ready land and common user uh infrastructure that may not be one project might be multiple projects so you're um diluting the risk across multiple um, projects that might come off. So that forward thinking, front face thing that uh, is predominantly investment territory. So Andy Cowan and Jason Schoolmeester, who I work with, they often have um, investors then identifying, well, what are the enablers from an infrastructure or even a freight and logistics sense? I have a freight and logistics specialist in my team. to work with them collaboratively until they uh, do their and final investment decision, because often uh, the capital input or the logistics chains often feed into the final investment decision for a proponent. So it's really about partnering with them early on um, to make sure that they can come to fruition, but in infrastructure, NT. We actually do that consolidated piece across investors, across uh, the community and industry that's already here um, to work out what common user infrastructure we can put in place that's really going to attract and secure that investment. So it's, it's diff- definitely a different approach to what we've had in the past. Um, and it's obviously paying dividends because we've, uh, Jason uh, showed me the figures just yesterday, were are the highest in the nation in terms of in growth. Uh, so our approach is kind of now being looked at by a lot of people because um, it's, yeah, it's a different way of thinking and it's trying to really partner with um, industry instead of waiting for them to, to come to you, um, but helping them de-risk their investment, but de-risk it for the Territory as well.
0: Fantastic. And that's great to hear that uh, we're leading the way when it comes yes. to across Australia. So we have uh, a, we have some really good projects that we've gone through. Some of them we know that, that you know we've got freight hubs or intermodal freight hubs along the the length of the territory. We've got a whole lot of regional plans. They're all potentially job creating. So it seems like in terms of a pathway to population growth, we've got some you know fairly fairly good um, fairly good uh, things plugged in there. But what about the housing? I mean we've as as of right now, we you know we we often have a lot of people telling us that you know employers in the regions are looking for staff they can't get them. There's just not enough housing. There's not enough affordable housing. Um, I guess I haven't yet seen any master planning with a level of sophistication like we have for something obviously on the scale of the Middle Arm precinct. But how are we going to house? What are your thoughts as to how we're going to meet the challenge of housing? a much bigger population, I think it's 20% more, within five yeah. to seven years.
1: Yeah, that to me is one of our key risks um, in achieving all of the above. Um, and we did provide advice to government late last year and um, the first part of housing really is to have service land. So government did invest, I think it was $186 million into uh, land release as part of trying to... Um, be on the front foot I guess in terms of when before that growth happens is making sure we've got enough land first off and then um, housing second for that so um, housing we have um, highlighted in our audit as well it's come through quite strongly from um, all the stakeholder consultations as well so uh, I am keeping a close eye on it and I know there's a lot of efforts going in and it, it unfortunately with housing it's a little bit chicken and egg because um we may build it all, and then if some of these projects don't happen, we may have over over invested, or if we don't do enough, we may have under invested. So it's really trying to forecast to uh, with the investments we have, how what population we're expecting, and where is a really key thing as well. So yeah. we've taken on a, a place based approach. Yep so that we can look at where are these impacts gonna happen so that we're investing in the right places as well. So um, that's, yeah, to me, housing is a key risk um, as well as the one that keeps me up at night is having enough people to deliver these things. So it's um, something we're definitely putting our mind to. Um, The chief Min's department, because we work closely with investment territory have uh, also recognized this risk um, and they're about to put out a tender in terms of um, government employee housing uh, and getting private sector investment to double that investment uh, with private sector housing as well, so trying to accelerate it that way and having uh, uh, employees from government buy into that uh, leasing scheme would mean you'd have more stock on the market as well for other, others coming into the um, regional centres in particular. So there's a number of levers we're pulling, but it's really trying to monitor that as we go to make sure we're having the effects we need to have um, as we keep going too.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts in this whole issue, isn't there? Yeah, in terms of how many is. houses we need, where are the houses? Where I, I mean, I guess in in um, in terms of the the work around the industry opportunities, there, there's a lot of there's a fair bit of clarity around that. I guess I'm just curious from an infrastructure, from an eye-body, I guess um, perspective, and, and maybe also the the perspective that your peers might take in the other states and territories as well. If you see regional opportunities, and we are pretty much a regional Economy, I guess, similar to like regional New South Wales or regional Queensland. Would you imagine that the growth of current urban centres such as Catherine and Turnagain Creek and Alice would, would grow incrementally, or would we be looking potentially at having a, a master plan community around the Beetaloo where the jobs potentially might be in an advanced manufacturing or any other industries? I mean, how how do we get ahead around what? what that housing and communities might look like, let alone, you know, how we divvy up affordable housing and more social housing and stuff. Because I think, you know, we clearly, we don't want to have fly-in, fly-out workers if we can avoid it, Um, but yeah, there are these challenges obviously around getting that right in the regions. Have you got any thoughts around, around that? Who's involved in that thinking?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, ourselves plus Chief Men's Department and uh, Territory Families um, as well, we're all included um, looking at this problem. So um, there's several things that are underway. Um, Some of it we're leading in Infrastructure NT. So mapping where the projects, as I mentioned before, is probably key um, to know where the impacts will happen. And and we do know Catherine Tennant and Alice Springs are all going to have uh, impacts. We're also doing research into what's happened um, in other jurisdictions and trying to avoid those pitfalls. So um, the Pilbara gets mentioned a lot in terms of how everyone moved in there in um, $9 cup of coffee. We don't want that to happen in, um, in our centres. So it's really trying to get on the front foot um, and make sure that we're ahead of the curve. Um, and we only just are, I would imagine at this point. Um, but the, I think the reality is we probably still will have fly in fly out workers uh, for some time and some of those private sector proponents, we've said to them, they, they're wanting to be here permanently too. So um, for the short term, they may have workers camps and things like that on, on their sites um, as we're still building the permanent dwellings and, and short-term accommodation and the like in, um, in our centres. And Beedaloo, for example, uh, there'll be several communities that we're looking at a lot because Beta is quite a large area. Uh, in between Tennant and Catherine, in particular, we think um, we need to look at all infrastructure, not just housing, but all go- and government services alongside that because of the population growth that potentially will occur there. So it's um, it's a very big problem. We had we've started looking at it, and I don't think we've got quite the solution yet. But um, another Thing we're going to look at is a systems mapping exercise where you look at all the interconnected parts of, of what's happening to make sure that we haven't missed anything uh, and then can do a plan for that um, system to roll out. So it's a yes. fairly big problem, but... Well, there's um, there's so many
0: right. there's so many aspects to it, aren't there? I mean, I guess it's Definitely. also around, you know, some of those areas, the jobs, what's the life cycle, life of mine or life of a project, just uh, catering for a single... Uh, people uh, flying flying out for a period of time, what do you want to get families there and then what community infrastructure and childcare yeah. and other amenities. So yeah. it's a lot of things to work through. Yeah. Um, and I guess uh, also at the present time, it's probably not your issue to address, but we've got obviously there are some things still to be worked through to get more land released in Catherine and and conclude land use agreements in Alice Springs and those things too so um, a lot of a lot of things there to to go through Um, so um, look I think um, one of the things I'd also like just to ask have we been a little bit slow do you think across Australia I'd probably say just to maybe recognize you know probably question for I guess infrastructure Australia seeing you know you're you, you know, the inaugural commissioner for the territory, but do you think we've been a little bit slow in the territory, may not in Australia, rather to recognise the important role that housing does play um, in terms of enabling economic growth? You know, when you look at the things like building population, increasing participation in the economy and productivity, I mean, you've got to have you've got to have a stable population. We want to we want to we want to be able to I guess grow a skilled local workforce as well, which will have a lot of benefits for First Nations people, clearly. Do you think maybe Australia's just been a little bit slow to recognise the key role that, that the built environment that housing plays and getting that into infrastructure audits and infrastructure plans?
1: I think um, this has been a really challenging space and we've talked about it a lot in the Infrastructure Bodies Forum. Um, not Probably not so much in Darwin, but we have seen um, in other states where people have left the cities and gone into regional areas um, and it's really hard to plan for lifestyle choices people are going to make so I think that's why housing has uh, that issue has exacerbated housing and it has now been I guess highlighted and maybe we were a little bit slow but COVID really highlighted the importance of housing but and how you plan for it I don't think any of us have got a a good handle on yet because um no one would have foreseen COVID and everybody deciding to move regionally um and that trend apparently is what we call a sticking trend so Infrastructure Australia have done some work and uh that regional trend seems to be staying so it's a really tricky one and I do know before COVID that the biggest cities were the ones that seemed to be attracting everybody. So the infrastructure, not just housing, all infrastructure was not coping well with that rapid growth. So um, it's a hard one because it does change depending on what Australia's circumstances are, all the global circumstances as well. So the, at the forum, we, of, we often do discuss um, that particular issue. and effect on housing and that's been reported countrywide at the moment that it's an issue everywhere so absolutely it's um yeah something we monitor but it's it's a bit hard to keep in front of at times
0: no absolutely it's a very challenging space um so one of the things that nationally i think I, i think is a positive um development is i guess the announcement of an accord that has an aspirational target the thing i like about it most i think is the fact that you've got a local government in there, you've got state and territory governments, you've got uh, institutional investors, superannuation funds and so forth. You've also got the building and construction sector. So I like the, the fact that that group as a team is trying to develop um, that commitment to social and affordable housing and how that's going to be delivered across Australia in the coming seven to eight years. I've got a lot of work to do. We haven't seen a lot of detail yet on that, obviously. But I do like the principle of, trying to solve these wicked problems, as you say, by getting together those kind of groups. Do you think there's an opportunity for us to do that here in the NT to maybe think how can we get people together to have a conversation around what can we do to support that 300,000 population? Because we do want to have enough housing for that workforce, don't we? That population, and if we can bring the supply online, there's probably less likelihood that we'll have those rents that we had around 2013 when there was impacts. We didn't have anywhere to rent. So, what are, you, what are your thoughts around how we can, I guess, get some um, get some good ideas around around that, and, and maybe help work with government on some of these very challenging problems.
1: Yeah, I think needs all of the above, personally, because um, because it is such a big problem, I think it actually needs a partnership approach with everyone um, coming to the table with their ideas because, um, I mean, in government we're trying several things, but I know also that um, our housing minister released stock into the um, market as well uh, to try and help everybody uh come along that journey but yeah i definitely think it's worth a conversation at least um, about how we could work together on on making it getting ahead of the curve
0: yeah excellent well i think um you know i hope there's not too many things apart from housing that are keeping you awake at night because it mustn't get much sleep louise McCormick. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's a few things but yeah that's probably one of the
0: one of the top ones yes I think I think. For him, if I'm just reflecting on the conversation, I think it's 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 fantastic to have people who are so passionate about the built environment and and building a, a better future for the territory. So in, and in doing so, along the way, solve a lot of our uh, challenging economic and social issues. So that's that's brilliant. I think it would be great if we can work on the risks and the constraints because we don't want housing to be a constraint to these uh, to these projects coming to fruition. So it'd be great to continue to stay engaged with you, and with your team, and with other people in government to just, I guess, just bring some ideas and solutions to the table yeah. where we can. Sounds awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us on the couch today. Uh, you've been listening to Louise McCormack, who's uh the Northern Territories Infrastructure Commissioner. It's been a pleasure having her uh speaking with us today. For those of you who are listening on, do do hit the subscribe button and uh, the notification bell to make sure you pick up future episodes of Sharing the Couch coming through. Thank you very much and bye for now.
1: You've been listening to Episode 1, Season 2 of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.